Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, a while ago, I came across a presentation on YouTube that was titled How I Learned About My Earliest Connection to Fort Western. And I gotta be completely honest, at the time this lecture was first brought to my attention, I didn't know anything at all about Fort Western. And I wasn't really sure why a lecture about some fort in Maine was being passed around in Franco-American circles. So, of course, after seeing the lecture, I knew we had to reach out and speak with the person who gave that presentation. Paul Lassard was born and raised in Augusta, Maine, where he lived in the Sandhill neighborhood for nearly 50 years. He attended the University of Maine at both Orono and Augusta campuses, where he studied history and political science. He's currently retired following a career in sales. Paul has been published in the Forum, a publication we've spoken about quite a bit on this show. He was a former member of the old Fort Western Board of Trustees, and he is a member of of the Calumet Club, an organization we spoke briefly about in the past, but which I'm very much looking forward to talking more about today. Now, Paul, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. My honor. Thank you for having me. Now, first, let me get your story a little bit. So I mentioned you grew up in Augusta, Maine. Now, what did the Franco-American experience look like at all in Augusta when you were growing up? Uh, well, you know, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, probably 95% French. We spoke French when I was a kid. English only came into play, I think, in, in the neighborhood after television uh, became uh, available to most people in the mid-50s. And uh, other than that, uh, you know, my, uh, my dad had been president of the Calumet Club the year that I was born. Uh, it was founded uh, in 1922. Uh, in order to preserve the Franco-American heritage and language. Quite honestly, uh, I joined the club. I was able to speak French. I, I still am able to speak French, although I, it has been years and years since I did, so I have sure. to really think about it. Yeah. But nonetheless, the neighborhood that I grew up in was French. Uh, I worked in Lewiston in my adult life, and uh, I heard French spoken in... Uh, Burger King when I would go to lunch sure. with the older folks. I guess I consider myself an old older folk. <laughs> My brother um, lived in Manchester for a while. He went to college in, in Manchester. Nice. And uh, he spoke French. He was very well aware of, of how French had dominated uh, a mill town of Manchester. And that's sure. one of the things that probably surprises people, that Augusta, despite being the state capital, was also a mill town. Sure. And that's how the French people came to Augusta. There were many mills to work in, textiles, shoe shop, uh, paper mill, you name it. I mean, my, my grandfather was 15 years old in 1895, and uh, his family, uh, seven siblings, his father and mother, uh, they came out of uh, Saint-Joseph-de-Beauce, moved to Augusta. Very similar to whatever happened in Manchester and Lowell and uh, Rhode Island. Sure. Um, a million French people moved down here, and my family was one of them. 
That's awesome. Now, did you go to school in French? Uh, I went to school uh, in uh, grammar school. I went to St. Augustine School. And half the day was in French, half the day gotcha. was in English. And so it was part of our heritage. Never gave a second thought. Right. My older brothers, nine, ten years older than me, did the same thing. They probably spoke French more than I did. Uh, but, you know, it, uh, it was part of that culture. It's not like that anymore. It's a little different. Yeah, no question. Now, I did like to talk, I would like to talk about the Cowboys Met Club a bit. You talked about the history of the club and why the club was founded. Um, what does the club do now? Well, the club, um, I do the newsletter since I retired. I can do graphics. Sure. And so I do the newsletter. I'm, I'm well aware of the French language. So I interject as much of it as I can, despite the fact that probably the younger members have a hard time speaking French. But its, it's purpose is still the same. It is about to um, come through its 100th anniversary. That's awesome. Which, which may be which may be the end of the French heritage culture, mostly because the population has dwindled. Taking my family, probably typical, uh, everybody went to college and uh, everybody sure. moved away. Right. So it was not unusual for that to happen. Uh, very seldom did you get a third generation. Certainly not a fourth generation. They uh, they anglicized themselves. That, that happened on my mother's side. My mother's family was from uh, Aroostook County in Madawaska. Sure. And uh, my great-great-grandfather was in the legislature, and he, he passed a bill to get an English school established in Madawaska, which— Oh, wow. I guess when you look at it, it was the beginning of the end. We should have talked with him, yeah. But uh, <laughs> until that time, um, his purpose there was to Americanize. They use that word in in the uh, in, in the uh, description of the bill to Americanize his uh, neighbors, uh, and that's really what moving uh, into uh, a society. I mean, we all uh, assimilate. Sure, and that's what happened with the Franco-American population in Augusta. No, but what? But you guys still do have events. Obviously, you got a newsletter. We do events. Uh, we do the newsletter, uh, monthly newsletter. <clears throat> we do uh, uh, semi-annually, or however you describe, bi-annually, uh, a uh, Festival de la Bastille, nice. uh, in which it, uh, shows the uh, Franco-American culture in music and different types of art forms. That's awesome. And uh, this year, for the first time, instead of having it on the Calumet Club grounds, it will be in the site of the former textile mill, Edwards Mill. That's great. And basically, it, it will actually have a bigger audience because it will be at the end of the downtown area. Um, not sure what's going to happen out of that. Um, very similar, I guess, to uh, La Calmesse in uh, Bitterford. Or sure. We're constantly changing. I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. We've survived this long. I'm not sure that there are more uh, reasons for people to move from Canada to Augusta, but nonetheless, it's very similar to uh, Manchester. My son lived there for a little while, and he worked in a former mill that became an office building. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of I, that. I do, I do too, in fact. I, I owned a uh, sign company, and I actually did the sign for the company that he worked for. 
That's awesome. And, and it blew my mind because in high school, I worked at Bates Manufacturing for a couple of years. To walk in that mill in, in Manchester, that took me back. Uh, you know, big uh, open room with sure. wooden posts and wooden floors. Yeah, it was interesting. It was very much the same as what I grew up with. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's pretty neat. In fact, I'm coming to you right now from what was Mill Housing here on Mechanic Street in Manchester. I do want to talk about that presentation you gave. I thought it was super, super interesting. Because um, you give the kind of the story of your family. It kind of you tell the story of the fort and you introduce some characters through the narrative of your family story, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, so first of all, how did you get your family story? Because you go all the way back to France. Well, uh, my family actually was one of the early uh, settlers in Quebec uh, province. Uh, my, I don't know, ninth uh, great grandfather. A lot of greats uh, here. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he was one of the early settlers. He came from Normandy, obviously. Uh, he came from a uh, farming background. He was not going to be wealthy. He was just going to be a farmer if he stayed there. And they, they had the opportunity to do something more with their lives uh, by crossing the Atlantic and going in and being a settler. Uh, and he did that. He was one of the first 500 settlers oh, in wow. Quebec. He... Uh, married the daughter of the uh, treasurer of Quebec. So right. he got some political pull besides... <laughs> that's, that's a good move uh, on his part, yeah. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he eventually became a seigneur. Uh, that's awesome. The, the, the king gave him some land. He never developed it. He sold it. But nevertheless, uh, he did acquire... Uh, the wealth and the fame, I guess, that, that he was seeking in his life. And, of course, like a good Catholic, he had a huge family. <laughs> like any family, uh, they're going to give their land to their children. But usually after the third or fourth child, they don't get anything because there's nothing left. So that's sure. how uh, Quebec kind of grew because uh, the, the remaining members of the family had to move and find new settlements. And uh, they did. And that's how we ended up uh, in the U.S. after a while. That's funny. Now, when he comes, your ancestor comes over from France, leaves Normandy. Uh, what town does he settle in, in Quebec, to begin with? He landed uh, in uh, Tadoussac, which was uh, sure. uh, a seagoing place. And he uh, somehow acquired a, uh, a shallop, a small boat, and the uh, ocean-going crafts, somehow or other, they never traveled uh, up the St. Lawrence in the early days. It took small boats. So it, that was his business opportunity. His small boat brought uh, cargo up to Quebec City in Montreal. And he settled in um, what later became uh, Saint-Anne-de-Beaupré, um, in fact, after he was married, he was married uh, in Quebec City. Uh, real fancy wedding because of who his wife was. Sure. And uh, he was able to acquire land, probably was given to him as a wedding gift, who knows. But nonetheless, uh, they got some land in uh, just east, northeast of uh, um, Ile d'Orléans. He wanted to uh, donate the land, a portion of the land, to the church and uh, name it after his own name, uh, Etienne, Saint Etienne. 
and they didn't want to do that. They wanted to name it after St. Anne, the, the mother of um, Mary. And so uh, he, he didn't get his way. But nonetheless, uh, when they changed, when they received the land, they also changed the name of the town from what it was to St. Anne. And so he was one of the early settlers, obviously, and he gave the uh, shore frontage, a portion of the shore frontage to the church. And uh, today, if you go there, you'll see a big stained glass window with his name on it, you know, and the fact that, that he awesome. gave the land in, what, 1658, so. Have you been up there? Have you seen uh, I, the church? You know, uh, I didn't know any of this when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, I learned later on, and so I decided, well, let's go take a look. And um, my wife and I went up, and uh, sure enough, uh, I was amazed. I was amazed That's to awesome. see what I saw. And uh, his name was on a plaque on the replica of the, the stone church, the small stone chapel. Uh, and so there's, uh, there's a Lassard Family Association, which happens to be centered in San Josef de Bos, which is where my grandfather was born. So I ended up meeting those people. So somehow or other, uh, all the pieces fell together, uh, and I understood where I came from. And uh, the Calumet Club was quite interesting because when they established uh, the Festival de la Bastille, they set up a little booth to do genealogy. So they give you your family tree for awesome. five bucks or whatever. Sure. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And then <laughs> I said, uh, this festival was lasting several days. So I said, I'll come back at the end of the week. They said, come back in a couple of hours. You know, <laughs> your, your family is quite uh, easy to find. And so I did that. And uh, sure enough, I ended up with, I think it was... Uh, nine generations back to uh, Etienne de Lassard. And uh, then I ended up making a trip to uh, France and went to uh, visit Normandy. And it was, it was quite interesting to find out how the name came about. Lassard is uh, farmland. So he really? was a farmer. If he had been in England, he would, his name would have been Farmer. Gotcha. And so De Lessard was his actual name. And then they dropped the D-E later on, a couple generations later. So nice. uh, it was quite good. I, you know, So I passed this on to my kids and sure. uh, my brother's kids and so forth. little family tree that... Uh, <laughs> that was a worthwhile stop at that booth there, for sure. It was. It was. <laughs> Is uh, it still offered if, if we were to go to that... That event, would they still be able to provide that service? I believe so. There That's is awesome. there there is a genealogy group at the club, and uh, uh, just on request, they'll do something for you if you if you're looking for it. That's they neat. know where to they know where to look anyway. Ev evidently, they can get you all the way back to France in two hours. They get something going for them. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, how did your family get? Because we mentioned Saint Joseph de Beauce a couple of times. How do we get from Hanging out. First of all, where is that? And how do we get from St. Anne de Beaupre to the Beauce? Well, about two or three generations uh, after uh, its end of Lassard, like I said, the, uh, the, the land uh, uh, being given to uh, children uh, kind of ran out. And uh, sure. 
these uh, younger children had to fend for themselves. And uh, they went down to Quebec at first, you know, where the population was. And then across from Quebec City is Lévis. And sure. what a river comes into that, it's called the Chaudière River. And if, if they travel up the Chaudière River, uh, the, the French were trying to get that settled. So they were giving land away as long as you complied with certain rules. You know, the king was going to give you some land. Sure. So that was a way for uh, younger people without land to get land. And they were establishing uh, settlements in St. Joseph and St. George and other places. And so uh, three of the brothers, the third generation brothers, ended up down there. They had been born in St. Anne. And uh, so they were well connected personally to, to uh, where Etienne was. Sure. But they, they settled uh, at St. Joseph because land was available. And that, uh, that's how they got there. And of course, three or four generations later, my ancestors uh, decided that for, for the opportunity, they would come to the U.S., to work uh, outside of being farmers, uh, they worked in the mills. So, sure. and now did you did you know the ancestors that came down? Uh, I I knew my grandfather and, and grandmother. Uh, my grandmother's maiden name was Book, nice. and uh, they lived oddly enough. All my there were eight children in my father's family. I obviously knew all of them, right. but. The fact that there were seven siblings, my grandfather had seven siblings. I only knew two of the families that uh, they obviously mostly were girls. It was only one other boy. Sure. But but uh, the names changed obviously when they got married, and I did not know who they were. And oddly enough, despite the fact that most of them stayed in in the area. I didn't know who they were. Uh, my <laughs> father never spoke about them. That's interesting. <laughs> and, except for, you know, some of these anecdotal things, like when my brother was in the Navy and he came back and uh, he wanted to date this one particular girl. He says, I'm going to have this date with so-and-so. He says, my father says, be careful because she's your cousin. <laughs> like, what? That's a good wording then. There was, uh, you know, <laughs> large, large families. Uh, sure. <laughs> you're going to run into that, I guess. That's awesome. Uh, so um, I would always ask him, I says, can I uh, ask this girl out? <laughs> That's a good check for sure. <laughs> you don't want that happening. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned, obviously, it's a big mill town at the time, uh, Augusta. Now, I know, at least for my family, they came down from Quebec uh, via a train. There was a train that would go back and forth. How did people from the Beauce end up in Augusta? What was that journey like? Well, the river continued up uh, to uh, Lake Meganic. Then you end up with the height of land. And uh, that became uh, a trail much earlier than uh, the Industrial Revolution. That, gotcha. was, that was a trail that the Indians used. Uh, you know, it was a traditional sure. route to get to the ocean from Quebec. And so uh, there was passage through there. Uh, you cross the height of land, you get into a couple of lakes, and those lakes had rivers that sure. led out of them. And eventually, 
you get down to the Kennebec River. And the Kennebec comes down through, oh, from uh, Bingham, let's say, all the way down to Augusta and then to the ocean and back. So the difficult part was uh, from Lake Meganic to cross the height of land until you got to what is today uh, where Sugarloaf happens, Sugarloaf Mountain happens to be. But they did that. Later on, there was something called the Canada Road where, you know, once cars became available to people sure. and transportation that way, they actually built roads. But that was probably, oh, the turn of the 20th century, you know. And uh, so my ancestors, 1890s, may not have gone that way, uh, sure. but they, they might have. They might have followed the traditional route. Nonetheless, they might have also taken the early Canada Road through Jackman. Gotcha. Now this is cool. Now, and your entire family, when they got to Augusta, they're all they all ended up working in the mills. Many generations. Well, at least uh, two generations. Uh, my father was the only one of his uh, siblings that did not work in the mill. Oh, really? Yeah. I, he went to high school. He was a baseball player. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, he was the only one to graduate from high school only because of his athletic ability. And when he graduated from high school, uh, he uh, he joined what was called the Civilian Conservation Corps in the mid-1930s. Uh, sure. And uh, he was he learned how to be a secretary. He, oh, wow. <laughs> he, could, he could type 80 words a minute on a manual typewriter. That's awesome. He, he worked uh, later on when he got out of that, a year or two later, he became a salesman at a drugstore and then uh, selling uh, bread on a bread truck. Sure. And then eventually he owned his own grocery store at the time when neighborhood grocers was a big thing. Sure. And, of course, 10 years later, that ended. That, that neighborhood grocer uh, grocery chain ended because supermarkets became the thing. So, oh, of course. I did want to talk about one thing uh, that came up that was super, super interesting that you've written about in the forum that you talked about in your presentation. That was this, the Arnold Expedition. Uh, for those who might not be familiar, what was it and how does that tie in to your family story? Well, the, the, the route that we were talking about uh, was something that uh, was known to Benedict Arnold. I don't know how he knew it, uh, but nonetheless... Uh, after uh, the uh, revolution started, all of the uh, American soldiers gathered uh, outside of Boston, probably in the Cambridge area. And this is when George Washington was first appointed uh, the general in charge of everything. Sure. And Arnold approached him and he said he had a route that could be traveled and it could attack Quebec. And he felt that because the, the French had been uh, taken over by the British, he felt that if they went in there with the troops uh, to free them, sure. that the French would join the revolution. And he convinced Washington, but Washington being newly appointed, he didn't dare make a decision unilaterally. He wanted other generals in his troop to make some decisions they went along with the idea, but it killed a couple of months by the time that uh, they sent out messengers and they got messages back. It took a couple of months. So instead of being ready to go, 
the the war actually started in April, right. but but by the time they got the oh, go ahead for this uh, attack, uh, it was uh, August, and so then they started assembling uh, men and uh, equipment, and then they they left Boston and came to what was Fort Western at the time. Fort Western was built in 1754 as part of the French and Indian War. Uh, defense system, and uh, it became the uh, starting point of the Arnold uh, expedition to go to Quebec and to try to take over Quebec City at the start of the American Revolution. So, 1775, you know, right. before before the uh, uh, anybody really thinks about it, you know, that's when the revolution started. Sure. And uh, so they, they finally got going out of Augusta at the, in the third week of September, which meant that they were going to run into some weather problems. For sure. And they did. They had bateaus that were built uh, in a rush at the last minute that were leaking. Uh, it was a very difficult thing. They had 1,100 troops. And uh, nonetheless... Um, you know, Benedict Arnold went ahead and kind of bought uh, uh, equipment and uh, uh, supervised where to go and, and left uh, messages for his troops as they followed him. Not all of them made it. I think that uh, just more than half, it was like about 660, finally made it to Quebec. They, uh, you know, didn't pick up any new troops except for, I know for a fact, that my relative, who I wrote about, I didn't know he was related to me, but nonetheless, <laughs> he, he signed up to go along with them at Fort Western, of all places. He was assigned to uh, General, uh, well, at the time, Captain Henry Dearborn's company, um, and that's who he served with. Uh, and... You know, they they went through and uh, Dearborn, uh, you know, was got sick after crossing the height of land. They had hurricanes and snowstorms. And it was a mess. Very difficult to get through. I think that despite the fact that Benedict Arnold was, uh, you know, a traitor later sure. on. Right. At this time, he was definitely a hero to do what he did. Henry uh, Dearborn got sick. I think he probably had pneumonia, you know, because he stayed at Saint Joseph de Beauce, and and fortunately for him, this Frenchman who signed up at Fort Western knew people at Saint Joseph de Beauce because he was related to them. That's awesome. And so, you know, his mother was a Lassard, <laughs> and the fact is, is that the Lassards who um, came from St. Anne de Beaupre and ended up in St. Joseph de Beauce, knew his mother and knew him uh, by, uh, at least by relationship. And so he, he won their support and Dearborn was able to stay in somebody's house for a month, which is kind of unheard of when you think about it. Right. Uh, and uh, he was able to re recoup his health and then uh, rejoined uh, Arnold and his troops up at, at Livy. And uh, then uh, the, the troops moved on 
to the battle in uh actually it was at the end of the year it was uh uh december 31st and for a couple of reasons it wasn't because of the weather it wasn't because of the uh anything like that it was because it was the end of the year and many of the troops their uh contract to be soldiers was going to expire the next day right yeah so uh they had to act that day and unfortunately uh the record shows that they lost the battle and many of the troops uh, 300 of them i guess uh, were captured my relation uh ship uh charles bourget he was captured along with dearborn and several others uh in that group that was the end of the Arnold expedition. Arnold did, <laughs> did not get captured. He had gotten wounded, but somehow he got away. So, Right. Now, how does, I'm just curious, how does Charles Bourget find himself in what is now Augusta in 1775 in order to jump aboard this? Do you have any idea why, uh, why he's think, in town at the time? The only thing I can guess, uh, when I started looking into it, I asked the Lassard Association if they would help me because obviously they were in St. Joseph and they, they had connections in Quebec City. Sure. And as it turned out, they gave me two Charles Bourgettes family tree, both related to Lillesards, and they were six years apart in age. And Charles Bourget, the one that I finally worked out who it was, was uh, six years old in, in 1759. So in 1775, he was 21, and uh, this is when uh, he probably... He learned English because of the English taking over Quebec. Sure. He was old enough when that battle happened to probably hold a grudge against the British. Then he decided, perhaps as a 20-year-old, to escape. And he went up the, the route and escaped down to Augusta. When the Arnold troops came through and he heard of what their, their mission was, to recapture Quebec City, sure. he got all excited as a 21-year-old 20, to go back and, and, and uh, defeat the British who had defeated his ancestors. So that's, that's what I think the motivation was. And uh, you know, there's nothing written about it. He, he was illiterate, so he didn't write what his motivation was. Sure. But I, I can't imagine why someone would would do that only that uh, he he held some hate for the uh, the victorious British and wanted to go back and win back his his homeland. So sure, he, no. he got the opportunity. Now this yeah it's crazy. This this story is going to get better um, now because you mentioned that he was captured, but that is not the end of the American Revolution story for Mister Bourget. So what what happens after that time? Because it was early in the revolution, there had not been many battles. Actually, there had not been uh, any battles except for one, which was at Concord and Lexington. Sure. Typically, they would exchange uh, prisoners, and uh, that's exactly what happened there. Or the first group was uh, the the leaders, uh, Henry Dearborn and whatnot. 
within uh, several months, uh, all the leaders were exchanged. But it took about a year uh, before uh, Bourget uh, was exchanged for some other people who had been captured on the American side. So he was released and he re you know, rather than do nothing, he rejoined his group, which was uh, now in Albany, New York, the next site of the battle. Uh, and all of a sudden, he's back in the thick of things in, uh, in Albany. And That's there's awesome. a couple of battles, and he's in there. And, and uh, within a couple of months, his unit from New Hampshire that he had been assigned to originally in, in Augusta, gets part of the assignment to go to Valley Forge. So he goes to Valley Forge in 1777, so 78. Yeah. So, you know, here's a guy who, uh, born in Quebec, signs up in Augusta, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's involved in some of the most notable battles or events in the American Revolution up to Valley Forge. And after Valley Forge, he was in one of the early battles right after uh, that winter and, uh, you know, just went on and on until he finally, uh, his term expired with uh, the, mess, uh, the uh, New Hampshire group. And, uh, of course, he'd been exposed to other units while he was at Valley Forge. So he signs up with a group from Wethersfield, Connecticut. His enlistment with the Wethersfield group is altogether different because, uh, of course, now he speaks French and sure. English. He's illiterate, of course, but that doesn't really matter because he's there for the rest of the war. And the group that he's with, I guess, gets the name Washington Spies. And I don't know if he was a spy because <laughs> they burned all the records. Of course. But he was there. When he uh, got to the end of the war, his uh, he he signs up for getting a military uh, pension, and, and of course the uh, the pension has to be certified by somebody. Sure. And so the payroll master certifies it, as well as the captain of uh, the unit that he signed up with, who had been the 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 major player in Washington spies. Now, you don't get somebody who's well-known or in the inner circle of George Washington attesting to your service unless he knows you. Sure. So there's a lot of speculation on my part, but again, there's just way too much familiarity to, to think otherwise. And there are no records, of course, because it was spies. So. And uh, to me, when I was just sharing, the, the big scope of this gentleman's story is, to me, is wild. I mean, you talk about, like you said, born and old enough to remember the conquests of Quebec, comes down, ends up in, the, <laughs> in a fort in what is now Augusta, goes through what has become a le legendarily horrific overland through backwoods main trip up to Quebec City. Like you mentioned, brutal conditions, tons of people dying, is captured released in time to take place in some of the battles that happened up in upstate New York. Super significant. Ends up, obviously, in Valley Forge. Everybody knows Valley Forge. Right. And then, by the way, he happens to get caught up uh, in a unit uh, 
run by Benjamin Talmadge, who anybody who's seen the AMC show Turn Washington Spies is now familiar with. That exactly. is just a crazy life story for this gentleman that happens to be your ancestor. And I find it super, super fascinating that you were find this. That was awesome. You know, uh, it was so weird that uh, this came about because I, I ran across the name being misspelled in Dearborn's journal when I was, uh, uh, I don't know, a sophomore in college. I was doing a work-study job at the Maine State Museum, and I got the assignment to write a report on Fort Western because sure. I was from Augusta. I, <laughs> I didn't know anything about Fort Western except that I knew where it was. It was located next to the Fort Western Tire on one side <laughs> and Eaton Shoe on the other there, side. There you, you go. <laughs> so, um, so the fact that they gave me the assignment, you know, was the the assumption that I knew what I was talking about. Well, I had to read, <laughs> I had to read a lot in a week to uh, make a make a story together to do a little sales pitch for what the toy was for children. It, the toy was a cardboard cutout of Fort Western. Gotcha. And so I read uh, Henry Dearborn's diary. And he mentions, you know, the Arnold expedition. And I thought, well, okay, that sounds really good. But then he writes that he was uh, accompanied by a guy named Charles Burgett, B-U-R-G-E-T. And I says, you know, that that's misspelled because he goes further to identify him as a, a man born in Kennedy, also misspelled. Sure. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, one of these days, I'm going to look this up. And it only took me 45 years before I finally got back to it. <laughs> but it was it was well worthwhile. I, I think that uh, this guy was famous uh, uh, only if you knew who he was. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure that I made him famous, but I, I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to get his name in, in uh, you know, the uh, University of Maine Forum uh, publication. Sure. I also was able to do a, uh, a lecture at Fort Western. And I did a, a, the same lecture, more or less, uh, at uh, the annual meeting of uh, uh, the Arnold Expedition Group. Oh, really? That's awesome. And, uh, you know, so all of the people that have an interest at least now know about it, including my family. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, it's uh, one of those things that I'm glad I questioned the misspelling of this French guy's <laughs> name. You know, and that's funny, too, because uh, when you look at uh, Franco-Americans and coming from Canada to the U.S., they become Americanized, as my ancestor would have said. Sure. And their names get changed, and many of them, you know, they lose their heritage because the name is gone. You know, a couple generations later, they don't know they're French. Charles Bourget ended up um, with no children. Uh, he died in upstate New York on land that was given to him as payment for his service. You know, his story would have ended there, you know, except for, uh, you know, uh, some curiosity uh, <laughs> of mine. So I'm glad I was able to do it. Yeah, me too, very much. When I saw that story, I just thought, I mean, being a big fan of the American Revolution generally, um, 
just a, that you were able to find this French Canadian personal connection with this amazing story. It was so, so neat. I'm very glad you've been able to share it. This has been way, way fun. Now, what are you working on now? You got any future research projects in the works? I really don't, you know, it's just <laughs> one of those things. I mean, I, I've just come off some, uh, health issues. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get my mind wrapped around remembering who I am. <laughs> But um, love to figure it, something out there. It would be fun to um, find another project, and like I said, I, I do um, the newsletter for the Calumet Club, which keeps me in touch with my heritage, sure. and probably helps me promote the heritage to to a mass group of uh, descendants who probably don't know as much as I do. I don't know. I, I think we're all in the same boat, whether you're living in Augusta or Manchester or Lewiston. Sure. A um, couple generations down, it gets lost. You know, it's very, unless there's a museum, which uh, there is in Lewiston, there's, there's one in Manchester. Woonsocket. There is no museum. has got a really good one. Yeah, there is no museum in Augusta. Uh, I don't know what happened to Augusta, but. Being the state capital probably worked against it because, in like in your case, when I exposed you to the fact that there were so many Franco-Americans here, right. it was a surprise. Absolutely, yep. And I'm not surprised because it was never reported on. And, you know, the, the mills that were here were no different than the ones in Manchester. Sure. Um, but... You know, somehow or other, if the capital of New Hampshire had mills, the same thing would have happened. You know, very possible. Yeah. Well, Boston, Boston was a mill town, but it's not treated that way. I don't know. It, it's just something about being the state capital that works against the heritage thing. I think. I got you. No, that's interesting. Now, if people want to get more information on the Calumet Club and some of the things they have going on, where can we send them? Well, the Calumet Club has a website. Uh, that would be uh, calumetclub.com. I would uh, be glad to put you in touch with a couple of people that understand the history of the Calumet Club and probably Absolutely. would give you better details than I could. Uh, and uh, I will do that. I will make sure that uh, they know who you are and make contact. But I think that uh, Augusta deserves to be known as much as Waterville and uh, Brunswick and <laughs> Bitterford. Yeah. Bitterford, you know, it is or was, I should say, it was a mill town. Sure. It's no longer a mill town. Uh, however, uh, there were textile workers at Bates Manufacturing, probably 1,600, and I would say 1,200 of them were migrants, uh, and they came from someplace else. And uh, I worked there in high school. Uh, like I said, my father was the only one that didn't work there in his family, but it was, uh, it was a way for somebody coming off the farm to get a job. Sure. And... Uh, you know, and my grandfather uh, and his siblings all ended up owning houses and doing whatever. It was just a natural thing to do. And uh, and it worked. And the next generation, you know, my father, you know, moved on 
and uh, his children, you know, like I said, uh, they all went to college. Um, sure. That's so, awesome. so that that's what happens. I think we're we're no different a story than the ones uh, in your town. So, that's very cool. Well, we again we have been joined by Paul Lassard telling us a little bit about the Augusta story and one of the craziest, most fun American Revolution stories I have ever heard because it involves a really interesting French-Canadian gentleman. Paul, thank you so much for joining the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you for this opportunity. Appreciate it. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.